Okay, good morning, everyone. My name's Adrian. If you don't know who I am, um, if this is your first time around us, we're exploring this amazing letter written by uh, someone called Paul uh, to a church in an area called Ephesus and the surrounding area uh, that's entitled Ephesians. And through this, we've kind of hooked it under a title we've called Crafted, as through the letter we're discovering that each and every one of us, whether we would say we've centered our lives around Jesus or not, have been lovingly made for purpose. And if we've not yet sensed our lives around Jesus, my hope is there is an invitation continuously for you to discover what it looks like to sense your life around Jesus. Because as you do, you'll discover that you have been crafted lovingly for purpose. Uh, but for those of us who have sent our lives around Jesus, we are increasingly discovering day on, day out of the amazing impact this truth has with us. Uh, and this morning I want to start actually by sharing a story which we'll see, we'll nearly get there technology-wise. Basically, we're trying new technology, and it won't work for the start off, but then it will work. So we'll be okay, I promise. We'll, I, I'm okay with this. I'm going to start by sharing a story of something that, if we can click on the thing, there we go, we've come. The technology's working. Um, basically, I want to start by telling a story of something that a group of us were part of uh, over the Easter uh, break. Uh, you may have been around, you may have heard something of this story, but I thought it'd be good just to uh, remind us of it. What we decided to do throughout our Easter celebrations was on Good Friday to do something that brought life to someone. As you recognize that on Good Friday, there's this moment of Jesus dying, it costing him something in order that he could then bring life to every single person on this planet. And so what we decided to do, what would it look like for us to sacrifice something in order to bring life to someone? And so a neighbor of Vincent Debs, who's a single mum, had a huge problem in her garden where this fence had blown down and she couldn't do anything about it. She'd lived with it for a number uh, of months, years, and couldn't get any help to do it. And so we heard about this and thought maybe we could do something about this. And so we gave up our Good Friday to basically clear out a load of stuff that was there and then put up a new fence. This is... <laughs> this is going to be one of those things that doesn't quite work. So we'll get there. It's okay. I'm cool with this. There you go. It's, it's obviously there's a delay in it. Or maybe it's Joe just doing it. So what we end up with is this. That we got and we finished it and we actually presented something that was far better than what was there before. Now the thing that gets me is that what we did is basically just gave up a bit of time and a bit of energy. And yet with any action, what you do or don't do does have an impact on other people. And so the girl who we did this for, this is what she texted the next day to say what impact us just putting a fence up had made. And so she says this, this morning I went into my daughter's bedroom and closed my eyes before looking out the window as I wanted to make sure it was real. I still feel very overwhelmed. The stress and depressed feeling I had have completely lifted. For me, I kind of saw that text, <clears throat> it was forwarded to me, and I thought, man, all we did is just give up a bit of time and put up a fence, and yet our simple action had a profound effect on this lady and her family, and continues to. In actual fact, unbeknown to her knowing I was going to share this this morning, she sent a card via Debs today just to, to us as a community to say, thank you so much, just want you to know how this is still changing my life. You see, the actions of what you and I do, day in, day out, of what we do do and don't do, have an impact not only on us, but also on those around us. And therefore, it's really important that we understand how we're to act. 
And what we've discovered week on, week out, is that we are crafted anew. That's what we've been looking at over the past few weeks particularly, seeing that the first couple of chapters of Ephesians kind of paint this vivid picture of once we've sent our life on Jesus, how our life is completely crafted anew, in order that we're characterized in a completely different way. In order that we're characterized as those that are chosen, blameless, shameless, loved, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, uh, given purpose, power to live with, that we're made alive all because of God's grace, nothing to do with us, all because of him. That we're God's handiwork, accepted, that we belong forever to him, that we're dwelling for him and we dwell with him. That we're completely free, we're confident before him and we're each and every one of us uniquely gifted. And what we've said is this is the life that we're to now live within because it's the fact of the life that we now have. The question is, are we living out of this life? Or are we returning to our old life? The old life that we're dead and buried to. And yet sometimes we can find ourselves digging it back up and saying, oh no, that's who I still am. Whereas actually the invitation Paul has given us to say, no, you've got this brand new life. The question is, are you going to live in and out of it? And so over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at, well, how does this then shape how we live? So we've looked at how it shapes our thinking, how it shapes our emotions, how it shapes last week, our speech. As I said today, I want to look at how it shapes our actions. And Paul kind of uses a few verses, literally three verses, to kind of hit us hard in how we act. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 3. He says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Paul basically says that how you act matters. And there's a way that you are to act, which is you're to act by seeking to live a life of love. There's also that you're to be careful that there's a way you're not to act. And you're not to act, you're to, to live in a way that there's not even a hint of anything that's sexual immorality, which we'll look at in a moment, or any other kind of impurity. Paul, what I love about it is he starts specific and then just keeps getting wider and wider. He says, you know, anything impure, in other words, anything that when you hold it up to God who's completely 100% perfect, kind of lends itself to being less than that. So anything that fits into that bracket or any greed, anything, anything that's ultimately about you, you wanting to get something. I don't have even a hint of that stuff. So then the question is, How do we ensure that we act how Paul is pointing us to? And to expand on that, I want to briefly at four C's. Four C's that I hope will be memorable. Four C's that I hope we'll walk with and live out of. But it's four C's that actually what we're going to find is two C's are about what we don't do. And two C's I hope that are what we will do. So the first C that we're not to live with is that of conforming. See, what we can hear that is in that way is say, all right, there's this way I've got to behave and this way I'm not going to behave, therefore I've got to conform to this. And if you like, the classic conforming moment is, please keep off the grass. My guess is every single one of us have gone to a place, maybe a stately home, a park, a school, a university campus, maybe it's a place in town, and there's a sign that says, please keep off the grass. And what you find is, when there's lots of people around, everyone keeps off the grass. 
But occasionally, like this path shows, there's a bit in the corner. And you think, well, do I really need to walk around the edge of the path? Can I just take a little shortcut? And what I love about please keep off the grass moments is you often find near the corners of the grass, there's usually a bit that's well trodden by numbers of people who are keeping off the grass, but everyone knows you've got to take the odd shortcut across the corner. So you find that, yes, keep off the grass, we're going to conform to that, but there's still these moments where we think, actually, either when no one's looking, I'm going to go and run on there and have a bit of a dance around, or everyone else does it, surely we can take a little nifty shortcut. And what we're not talking about here, when we're saying of how we're to act, is about conformity. It's about saying like how we're going to behave when everyone else is around is this way. But actually, when we're by ourselves, what you find out about us is something quite different. Or maybe it's that we continuously maintain this kind of way that we're acting, but actually internally we know that actually we're just seething within, thinking, oh, if people only knew. See, Jesus was really clear that he wasn't after people who lived conforming to how he wants us to live. He told loads of stories about it. He said, look, people who live that way are like whitewashed tombs. In other words, they look glistening on the outside, but they're just dead within. He says, we're not to live conforming. That's the first thing that we're not to do. Second one is not to live with condemnation. See, there's this other way that we can live, thinking, right, okay, there's this way that we can act, and there's a way that we don't act, and therefore what we do is we live continuously thinking, actually, I, I know I messed up, to be honest, at the very beginning, which is why I need Jesus, and so I just feel completely laden down with the shame and guilt that I have for how I used to live, and that helps me ensure that I keep living, thinking, who am I? I'm just unworthy in every possible way. I'm laden with all my guilt and shame, and I'll just keep going on in life. Or maybe we mess up and we think, oh no, this is another thing I've got to take on to me. And we think, oh yeah, how I ensure that I kind of act how many is I just continuously live from that place of saying, oh yeah, who, I'm just, I'm worthless. I'm someone who's just completely condemned. And again, this is the exact opposite of how Jesus wants us to live. You see, this is a way that we're living where it's basically saying that actually there is no joy in this life that Jesus has afforded us. There's no life in this life that Jesus has afforded us. What we find is we, we find that we come and we're continuously trying to make ourselves better by continuously showing how bad we are, rather than living in the wonder of how Jesus has declared us as so good and the joy and the life that is to be found in that. So we're not to live conforming, not to live with condemnation. I then put it to us that how we are to live is with conviction. And conviction is about two things. It's about a conviction to say, this is the way that I'm going to go. It's that deep sense of belief. I'm saying, I'm going this way, regardless of what anyone else is saying. This is my conviction. I'm going this way. It's also the conviction of saying, well, I'm not going to go that way. And the conviction comes also that not only do I know where I'm going, but I'm also open to challenge if I don't keep going the this way that I've set my mind to. That if I find myself going back to that way, I'm open to the challenge to ensure that I go back in the way that I'm convicted to go. And it's that that Paul wants us to get hold of. If we're going to be crafted anew and worked out in respect to how we act, it's with conviction. 
So what does that conviction look like? Well, Paul paints it. Firstly, he says, it's about being selfless. Verses 1 to 2, Paul writes this. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul says, right, there's this way that you're to act. And the this way is a selfless way. It's therefore no longer the old man, which we looked at a few weeks ago, of saying, actually, my life was all about how I live for me, all curved into myself. Rather, it's now a life which actually is lived with God at the center, which causes me to live not for me, but for him and for others. I get to live selflessly. As I said, Paul says we to live a life of love. The concern I'd have in this, though, and the concern I have for myself is that sometimes I can hear that and think, well, okay, then what I've got to do is I've got to live with a sense of duty. That I, I better live this way. I've got to live this way rather than I want to live this way. And when we do that, we fail to remember what Paul writes in this. Because what he does is he emphasizes, it's just you, isn't it, controlling it. It's nothing to do with me. Um, <clears throat> if we can push it one more side. There we go. Um, let's give up on that, because it's just not working today. And I'll just, I'm just going to look like really lame, continuously pointing, saying, that's not working. Um, is that Paul kind of says, well, what's going on here is we need to understand that we are firstly loved children who are imitating their father. That this life and this way that we're to act isn't out of a sense of duty, but it's all out of a sense of relationship. It's all out of the fact of us understanding who our father is and how he is. You see, let me tell you a quick story. About three or four months ago, Lucy and I get one of these phone calls from one of our friends who's not connected with Oasis other than through us. They don't believe in Jesus, and they call us and they just say, my life is falling apart. Uh, st- stuff had happened at home, we don't want to go into the detail of it, but it, would, it was proper bad in the Hearst way of expressing things. And so we just said, well, feel free to come around. So they came round, and initially they were coming for like 30 minutes. It ended up being four hours, they're around with their kids. And this was like five o'clock starting point. And so our kids, are just everything is just chaos. We, we don't cook tea, we're kind of thinking, what's going on? We're just giving all our time and attention to the mum. Our kids are doing what they can to look after her kids. And at the end of it, we kind of gather everything together. And I think about nine o'clock, we finally give them like a slice of bread or something to eat. And they're, they're kind of, we're kind of settled. And our friend goes away feeling kind of more at peace, feeling like they're not alone. And um, we get a text at half nine, just as we're putting the kids to bed. And it's from this, this lady. And she just said, like, I just want you to know that it was incredibly kind how you were to us as a family. And it meant so much that you did this. And so as we're putting the kids to bed, we tell them this, because this has cost them. You know, they, they had a lot of things planned and they didn't get anything. They didn't even get very good tea that night. You know, it cost them. And so he turns to them and says, look, I just want to read out this text of what it meant for us to sacrifice this. And there's moments in parenting where things happen where you think, man, we're doing all right. There's many moments we think, oh, no. Um, this was one of those moments where you think, do you know what, we're doing all right. So we read the text out, and one of the kids turns to us, and they say, well, what's the big deal? They said, we're the Hursts. This is what we do. And at that moment, as they expressed that, I suddenly realized they'd caught hold of something that I can so easily forget in my relationship with God. 
that I'm now part of the best family that's ever existed because it's always existed, which is the Father, Son, and Spirit. And I get to be part of what they've always been part of, which is revealing their love for one another and getting others drawn in to sharing that love. And therefore, I get to continue to remember that as I live out of love, I'm actually just mirroring what my father has always been about. And I get to remember and say, man, I don't do this because I've got to. I don't do this because of the thanks. I do this because it's just who we are. See, this is where we have to get to. Even us acting, we're not acting out of a sense of duty. We act out of that deep sense of relationship, of understanding our identity, that we're children of God. We have a Father who loves us unconditionally, eternally. We have a Father who accepts us unconditionally, eternally. We have a Father who values us beyond anything we could ever expect or imagine. And it's that that we get to live out of, of understanding we're more loved, more accepted, more valued than we could ever dare to imagine. And that from that place, we then act. That place, we then say, actually, from this, of what I know of my Father, I then get to show the same to others, love, acceptance, and value. So then we get to act, as Paul says. So he says, therefore, live a life of love. Well, how do you do that? We kind of keep pushing it down. Well, how you do that is you live like Christ. So if we click to the next slide. So just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. You see, how Jesus did this, how Jesus lived out this life of love, is he did it by not being about himself, but by being about others. You see that we find that he loved by loving us. The us is literally everyone in this room, everyone on this planet who has lived, will live, and is living. That's the us. It's quite a big us. So he did it by loving people. Then we find out at the end, he did it through a sacrifice to God. He did it through loving God. Funny that, isn't it? Oasis wasn't the first group of people to come up with four snazzy words. Loving God and loving people. It seems as though God was about it way before us. That this love that we're to live out of is always out of this deep sense of love for God and love for people. And then Paul kind of says, well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks how Jesus did it. He, it cost and it was sacrificial. That for Jesus to love God and to love people meant that it cost him. It meant that it was about his sacrifice, the willingness to come down and live amongst us, the willingness to be rejected, the willingness to ultimately go to the cross and die. So that's the way you're to love. Oh, but that's too hard. That, that sounds like duty now. That sounds like a pressure. Oh, no, this is freedom. This is as we get to live out of this beauty of this relationship we now have with a father, we now get to love as he loves. Love in every area of our lives, which means that we get to love people. Who are the people? Everyone. Get to live with that sense of love and acceptance and value towards everyone. Part of why we're bringing this morning's meeting to a close earlier is because we firmly believe this. And so it seems crazy to talk about on a morning, hey, what we're about is living out of a life of love, and we're going to love people, and that's everyone, and then see that a whole load of people from the city are going to literally run past our window there and say, oh yeah, we're all about loving people and continue to meet in here. Because that's kind of totally nuts. Because what you have to do at that point is stop and be out there to show people 
that you love them. If you think, oh, but all we're doing is cheering. I tell you what, it makes a massive difference to those that are running. And the number of people who say, well, what bunch of people is this? And we make it quite clear the bunch of people it is. We put loads of orange flags up so they can see us. The race organizers know about us. See, it's as part now of the partnership of what we're doing in the city. Why? Because we're not after kind of promoting ourselves. We're after just saying, this is the love we've known. We want others to know it. But it's also not only about what we do do. Sometimes it's about what we don't do. Sometimes that's the cost of actually denying ourselves things or maybe not doing things for people that are going to harm them, destructive, as we think, actually, no, I'm about loving them, which means both doing things but also not doing things, which we'll come on to in a moment. So firstly, it's just that. The next part of it is then not only the way that we are to live, there's also a way we're not to live, which is we're not to be self-centered. So Paul writes this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. See, that sexual immorality is basically a banner heading of saying, actually, anything that is outside of God's plan where sex is to be enjoyed. Anything outside of marriage. That's what Paul says. And then he kind of brings it a bit further. He says, actually, let's not just link this just to sexual sin. Let's not bring it out and say, actually, anything that falls short of the full purity of who God is. Then he kind of takes it out again, as I said, and then says, actually, anything that's about greed, anything ultimately what we're talking about here is anything that's us curving in on ourselves and saying what we're about in this moment is no longer living out of this love to show others selflessly this love. is actually saying, I want to get for myself. When we curve in and say it's about what I want, it suddenly becomes like the old man which he looked at a few weeks ago, which is ultimately one of devastation and destruction. Because what that always does of that way of just saying, actually, I'm just out for myself, is it will always bring harm to us ultimately and to others connected with it. And Paul says, look, don't go after that. In actual fact, he goes even stronger to that, which is why I've emphasized it. He says, don't let it even be a hint. For me, this is like one of the most sobering words that's there. It's not like, don't let anyone catch you. Don't let anyone see you. It's like, don't let even... The word hint is like, don't anyone be able to name it amongst you? Because remember, he's talking not only to individuals, he's talking to a whole community and say, don't let there even be a hint of this stuff amongst you. This is like proper sobering moment. Like, for me, this, this is the stuff that undoes me. Think, a hint? Like literally just a hint, it's sniff of it. Not like someone saying, I saw you do this. Is this around you? Jesus, like, loved to talk about hints. So whenever he was cornered, so you find him talk about it. It says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, do not look at someone. He said, look, don't think. It's just about your outward. You've got to continuously say it's about the hints of what is it your life is hinting towards in how you act both publicly and privately. Because people are watching. Because God can see. Actions matter. Now the challenge is we start here often and say, right, let's smack each other down then and say, hint, I saw this. Rather than remembering, no, the point isn't that we focus so much on not a hint that we forget that what we're called to is relationship. We're not called to continuously guard against the hint. No, we're called to live out of the life of love. And it's as we see how attractive the life of love is, we think, well, then there isn't a hint. 
Why would we ever compromise? Why would we ever settle for the hints? Now, I'm not going to go around the room and say, here's the hints then. What are these things? How are you doing on this? Bang, 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 bang. That's not it. Do you know why? Because when we're living with conviction, I'm saying, actually, this is the way I'm going, but also I'm challenged if there's a hint. Actually, the Holy Spirit is longing to come and convict us. His desire is to keep encouraging us on the track that we're deciding to go for, on the way that we're saying we're going to go this way, of living out of love. The Holy Spirit longs to come and just help us. I say, not a hint. I have people around me who continuously ask, how am I doing in different areas? But the person, ultimately, who keeps me on track is the Holy Spirit and just keeping me open to him. And daily I'm coming saying, God, how, are there areas of my life which I'm compromising on? Are there areas of my life where I'm saying, actually, I've said I'm going this way, but I've found myself drifting back to that way. And it isn't that I'm gauging myself and saying, well, do you know what? I'm doing all right. I want to look at them and how they're doing. I think I'm all right. That's not it. It's not comparison with others. It's comparison with who Jesus is and allowing the Spirit to say, actually, not even a hint, Adrian. And I find myself, I find myself moments. I remember being in a room like this quite a while ago. I wasn't leading a at that point. I remember someone talking. And what they were talking about, I don't even know what they were talking about, to be honest. But I remember all they said is, at the end, if you need to, come forward. This is a big call, but I want you to come forward if you think there's anything in your life we think, oh God, I, I, I've not given you complete control here. I, I don't want a hint of anything. And I remember just standing up. I didn't even know what, they, what else they'd say. I remember standing up and going straight forward. And as I looked around, I realized that no one else had come forward. And then gradually, a couple of other people came forward, like really red in the face and embarrassed. I was like, what was going on here? And I realized that there was a call because the call that had been made was about, are you being unfaithful to someone at the moment? That was a pretty tough call. There'd be me, poof, straight up. I'm suddenly thinking, should I go back and sit down? You know, someone comes alongside me, puts her arm around me, goes, do you want to tell us about it? And I, said, I said, I just don't want a hint. And they said, oh, okay, I know, but what about the unfaithful? I, what are you talking about? Pure Adrian moment. Didn't bother listening to what someone was fully saying. Listen to the bit I wanted to hear. Not a hint. Now, in that comedy moment of exposing myself before 300 people, People were quite funny, the conversation I had afterwards. But in it, what I realized about myself is actually there is something in me that I want to continuously be there that says, actually, I'm not living for the audience of others. I'm living for an audience of one, which is God. And when I look to him, I want to say, not a hint. I love getting to, back to the Bible when it comes to this stuff and where it says, one day everything will be shouted from the rooftops. And I think, I'm going to get everything out before that point. <laughs> Let's not let there be a hint amongst us. That doesn't mean that we're kind of out to get one another. It's in order that we keep calling each other and saying, aren't we made for something better than this? We don't live in condemnation. We live with conviction. And in that, I'd say what happens is we're not perfect. We do stuff that doesn't quite fit the way that we've said we're convicted to go. And in that moment where we do the stuff that doesn't match up, what we do is we repent. 
There's a difference between repentance and remorse. Remorse is where you basically, you found out, if you like, and you feel a bit gutted, but that's it. You feel gutted in some ways that you have found out. Repentance is where you say, do you know what? I am gutted. I cannot believe this has happened. And God, I know I'm not living as I want to. Therefore, I come and I say, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I receive your forgiveness. And now I turn from going that way. And now I go this way. That's what repentance is. So how are we doing in respect to this then? This is stuff just to ask ourselves. I'd say, draw this. This is a little thing you can do when you get home. We're going to finish in a moment with a different thing. But if you like, do a little scale. And on one side, we've got self-centered, an arrow that way. And then the arrow carries on to the other side, which is selfless. And if you like, I'd just dash, where am I at in respect to these areas of life, of work? That's whatever we're putting our hands to at the moment. That might be employed, it might be voluntary, it might be at home, it might be through recovery. And in it, are we living selflessly, seeking to love God in everything we're doing? Seeking to love others through what we're doing? Or are we living self-centered? Tag it off and then you can start to make, kind of work out what you need to do next. That might mean that moment of repentance. It might mean talking to others who can help you. Do it in work, do it in rest. At that point, you can think, well, surely the point of rest, Adrian, is that it's about me. Surely that is going to be self-centered. Well, it's how we rest. Is the rest that we're looking for something that is destructive to us rather than something that is causing us to live out of that life of love? See, I love resting by inviting God into what I'm resting in. I remember some time ago, someone talking about how they used to... It's a bit weird. They're American. And so they said, just again for American friends, I, I do love you. Um, there's, but I remember, but it's easier in that culture, I'd say, than us. So what they said they do, they said, I love resting with God. And I said, well, what they do, they, they said, they go on date nights with God. They said, we'd go out for a meal, just me, and I'd book another chair, and it'd just be me and God. And I was thinking, what? And they said, then we go to the cinema, I'd buy two tickets. I said, why do you buy two tickets? Um, and it's just me and God. And what I thought was... This is a little bit crazy, but what they were saying is, in the very essence of what they're doing to rest, it's not excluding God. They're still seeking to have God at the very center of it as they eat their meal, as they go and watch a film. They're seeking to say, God is with me, I'm seeking to still love him through this. So I took that. So when I go for walks, I invite God in. I say, God, I'm not just disappearing now. I'm saying, God, in this rest moment, I want you there. As I go for a coffee with Lucy, I'm doing that. As I play on my son's Xbox One, which I do when he's not around. Don't tell him. I'm in that moment saying, God, I know you can come and be with me in this. As well as the times I get with him is that we get to see that we can have him involved in everything. So it's work, rest, in our money, in our relationships, even in church. And I say, look at it and just tag along. Say, what are the areas you need to focus? None of us are going to be 100% selfless on every area, as well as none of us are going to be 100% self-centered on every area. But we'll find, as we tag ourselves along that line, there'll be some that we think, actually, I need to give more attention to this at the moment because I don't want even a hint. I know what it is for me. What is it for you? So where do we stop off then? Well, I want us to end this morning before we go and cheer on some runners with communion, which is the fourth C. See, communion allows us to get our sight back right with the focus that we want of how we're going to live out our actions. 
Because what we do in communion is we do what Paul wrote in verse 2. He says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, as a, as a sacrifice to God. That as we come and gather around communion, what we're doing is we're remembering. Remembering that Jesus is one who modeled what a life of love looks like. Remembering that as we take the juice, as we eat the bread, we're remembering that it is his sacrifice that has given us this amazing life in God. That's what we do it. We take it, we remember, but we also use it as a moment to repent, to get right. Say, actually, God, I, I, I'm not just taking this just without thinking. I'm, I'm remembering you, but actually me remembering you I, reminds me of how there's this stuff that I know I've, I've allowed the hints to come. I need to get the, the right pursuit again. And in that moment of communion, we take it and we say, God, I repent of this. I t- say sorry and I, I turn back in order I'm going this way. And lastly, what it does is it takes it and we then say, actually, just as I'm remembering this, just as I've spent time repenting, I also say, I now want to reveal this. And what I'm taking here in bread and juice, it causes me to remember this is what I'm going to reveal through my life. That Jesus, just as you, revealed love for God and people. As I take this, I remember that's what I'm about on this earth, is revealing love. And how I'm going to do that is as you did, through sacrifice and through it costing me. That's what we do when we take communion. What we're going to do is Andrew's going to come, lead us in a song. And as he leads us in that song, we're then going to just get everyone to go out. And at some point, you'll feel available. I'll probably step up and say, actually, I'm ready now. I'll say, use this song to kind of get focus on God. If there's stuff you feel convicted of, you want to repent, you do it in that moment. And then as we've sung, we'll then get to take bread and juice. And we'll probably do that individually today rather than collectively together. But I'll tell us when we're going to do that, and then we'll end. Is that all right? Should we stand? Andrew, lead us in singing.